I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. And I have an important topic to show you this morning, an important topic you've probably seen and witnessed, hopefully many times. And with this last really doctrinal sermon of the summer, I want to touch on preaching. Preaching. Not because you're all going to be preachers. Hopefully there might be some amongst us who arise as preachers. But because you need to understand how important it is to the local church. It's something that's done every Sunday. Every Lord's Day, the Word is preached. It's, it's commanded to be that in Scripture. And so we should look and see what is preaching. What's it supposed to be like if the Lord ever takes you to a different town, a different church. And need to know a bit about what Scripture says on the importance of biblical expository preaching. And we'll look at a few texts this morning, but I want to start, and I'll spend much time in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the first four verses. So I want to read those to you and consider what Paul has to teach us here, what Paul is telling Timothy to do in the church Timothy is overseeing. And these same commands apply to us today. 2 Timothy, starting chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers and accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Preaching the word is vital to the local church, to every church. Many of you have come here because you're searching for a church that preaches the word. And I praise the Lord, we're not the only church in all of San Antonio that preaches the word expositionally, but there seems to be so few, and fewer and fewer every year. John MacArthur said, in talking about preaching to other preachers, he said, the liberals attack the Bible by denying its truth. Charismatics undermine the Bible by elevating experience over Scripture. But many, and he said this is the worst, many evangelical Christians get up every week in the pulpit they do not explain what the Bible is actually saying and its meaning for our life. He says it's a superficial sermon and does not rightly divide the word of truth. If scriptures are of importance and if they're authoritative for our life and if they're sufficient for sanctification and, and the means by which we're saved through the preaching of the gospel, the word has to be preached and not just said to be preached, but actually preached. So what does that look like? What does Scripture say about it? We need to know these things. In your lifetime as a believer, depending on how long God lets you live, how long God preserves you on this earth before He takes you home, you might hear 1,000 to 2,000 hours of preaching on Sunday. That's not counting all the preaching you hear outside of Sunday, maybe online, radio, other opportunities here in our church. With thousands of hours, you need to know what preaching is and what it looks like and, and what it feels like, if we want to use the word feel. It, it ought to do something to you when you hear the word preached. 
backing up a bit and just describing what a true church is. The reformers had a lot to say about what a true church is because the Catholic church claimed they were the true church because they had miracles, because they had the mass. And the reformers said, no, no, that doesn't make a true church. The Bible describes a true church like this. A group of believers who meet regularly in one location on the Lord's Day where the word is purely preached. That was the first mark of a true church. Calvin said you shouldn't even go to a place if the word is not purely preached. They said the ordinance must also be observed, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and church discipline is exercised. Those were the marks, they said, of a true church according to the Protestant understanding of Scripture, which we know to be found in Scripture. These marks are found in Scripture. So we ought to focus on those things. You should focus on those things when you're looking for a church, when you're joining a church, and expect that they would be done in a church. So let's look at the word is purely preached. There are different types of sermons. Not every one is necessarily verse by verse, passage by passage. It's most of what we do here. But even myself, these last few weeks, I've been looking more topical, more doctrinal. And that's where you take a collection of passages and you, you address a subject, a need. You do theology. What does the Bible say about this issue? And you put those verses together and you deliver that as a sermon. That's good to have sometimes. It's needed sometimes. But it ought not to be the meat and potatoes that we have throughout our year, throughout our lives. Another type of sermon is a textual sermon where you take just one text and exposit that. And that's a very faithful way to preach. Charles Spurgeon would take one text. He would set the context. He would do a scripture reading before he preached that set the context. And then he would preach on that one verse. And he would exposit it. So it was expository preaching. But better and and more commonly done since the Reformation is expository preaching that's consecutive. That goes through books of the Bible that goes passage by passage, sometimes only taking one verse or maybe two or three or five verses in a passage and opening those up and preaching on those. All of those can be done, topical, textual, and consecutive expository can be done in a faithful manner. But the more regular diet of a church, like I said, has to be consecutive expository preaching. We were convicted by this when we planted our church. That's why we've been doing that on a regular basis. So Lord willing, we'll start again with an exposition of Ephesians in September. And you can look back to the sermon and think of what is the message supposed to be? How is the preacher supposed to preach? So first of all, let's describe the nature of expository preaching. That's the first thing we need to look at. What is it? How do you define it? What's the closest thing in Scripture to defining it? And I think we see that in verse 2 of 2 Timothy, the nature of expository preaching. He says, preach the word. That tells us what's to be preached. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. These are the elements of what it looks like when the word is preached. And he says, preach first of all. Proclaim aloud the word of God. That's what preach means. That's what the word means today. It should. Many have preached other things, but it should mean proclaim the word of God aloud. It meant that In Paul's day, when he wrote this letter in Greek, it it meant to proclaim it. Not a person's opinions, not a person's stories, but we are proclaiming the word of God when the pulpit is proclaiming the sermon. The word of God is what's preached. The Bible has to be proclaimed, and it has to be explained. 
Expository preaching is not read a passage and then go off on a tangent. Expository preaching is explaining what the word means, proclaiming the meaning of the text. That's what it is. And applying that text to the hearers. Heart application cannot happen, though, until the word is explained. There are many churches that give you ideas and give you um, application points, but the text has not yet been explained. So even if there was a text read and then there were application points given, it's really hard to tie those back to that text. Where did this preacher even get those ideas? Because you have to explain what the word means. Preaching is not just a running commentary of the text. You would not appreciate it if I spent all week reading commentaries and then I just got up here and dumped all that on you and just quoted this long research paper. Most of you would be asleep by the time we're done. That's not what preaching is. And it's not a boring lecture on the theme of the text. It's not rambling comments, offhand remarks, stories about my family, stories about what we did on vacation, stories about what happened yesterday, stories, stories, stories. That's not it. It's not taking a text out of context either. Where I want to make a point, but then I just throw up a verse real quick on the screen and then keep on going making my point, but it's not found in the Word. That's out of context. A lot of Christianity is taking a verse out of context. And then when we don't understand what the verse means, we can do what we want with it. It's not a devotional. It's not just a 15-minute happy time where we get to sit around and discuss our feelings about the text. It's not a discussion group either, where we just sit down and have a dialogue like the emergent church used to do. It's not those things at all. And many people think when a pastor, when a church is going book by book, and the pastor gets up and he reads it and then he tells stories, that's an expository sermon because he's going verse by verse through a passage. But he has to explain the meaning of it. Just reading it and then going off on stories does not make an expository sermon. The question is, what did the author of that passage being preached, what did the author intend, both the original author God, but the one he inspired to write the book of the Bible, the one he inspired to write that text, whether it's Paul or James or John, Matthew or Isaiah or Moses with the first five books, what is the intended meaning of the text? What was it supposed to do for them in their hearts back then, and what's it supposed to do for us today? And the Word does do something to us and for us. What's the grammar mean? When we look at the text, we need to look at the grammar. And, and I want to explain that to you because that's where I can show you what the text means. The words, what do they mean? How is this sentence arranged? Sometimes Jesus makes a whole point on a verb tense. God says, I am the God of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. I am. Present tense. Jesus is saying God is everlasting. He's always there. Verb tense. Jesus makes that point over and over. The apostles, the prophets in the Old Testament. And what does the rest of the Bible say about this passage? It's not enough just to say, here's what these words mean. Here's what the grammar means. But what else does the Bible say? Do theology. We've got to do theology. Today is a theology of preaching. We've got to compare it and cross-reference it to other parts of the Bible. That's what makes up expository preaching. Jesus does this. If you want to look at Luke 24, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. He's going down the road. He looks like a stranger to these men. And 
He asks them what's going on. Why are they so upset? Why are they so sad? They tell him, have you not heard? You know, where, where have you been? Have you not heard what happened to our Messiah, to Jesus, the Christ, the Nazarene? So he begins telling them that they're foolish. They don't know it's Jesus, but he tells them they're foolish and they don't believe what the prophets said in the Old Testament. And he begins preaching sermons, really, more than one, because he's taking different passages, not every word of the Old Testament, but passages where he, the Messiah, is described. And he begins preaching to them. It says in Luke 24, 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, the whole Old Testament, he explained them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, it wasn't long enough for him to go through every verse in the Old Testament. He's not saying every single verse was pointing to him specifically. We know the whole Old Testament is pointing to him, but he wasn't going through every single verse, but he was taking passages and expositing them because it says he explained it to them. He wasn't just quoting. He didn't simply say, you're foolish, let me cite this verse. Okay, next verse I'm going to quote, next verse I'm going to quote. He's explaining how he's in that passage. He's explaining it to him. The word here is similar to our English word hermeneutics. Hermeneutics being the, the study and principles of interpreting scripture. Hermeneutics. In Greek, it sounds very similar. It's from the same word. The idea is an explanation to the hearer. He's explaining it to them. Now go down to verse 32, Luke 24, 32. They said to one another, this is after he's gone, after he's disappeared, they realized who it was because he revealed himself. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? So we see the effect of preaching and explaining the passage. He's expositing scripture and it had an effect on their hearts. Not just because it was Jesus, but it says when he was preaching, while he was explaining the scriptures to us, that's when our hearts burn. So this word to explain used twice in this passage. And it means to clarify something, to make it understandable. How did Jesus preach? Because he was a preacher. I mean, God had one son. He made him a preacher. Of course, he was our Savior and our Messiah. But what did he do for three years? He preached. He preached the gospel. He preached on justification, sanctification. He preached. What is it? It's to proclaim God's word, to clarify something, to make it understandable, first of all. That's what he was doing. We also have another word in English. It comes from a Greek word that's similar, exegesis. Exegesis. And hermeneutics means to interpret it rightly and the principles behind that. Exegesis means that you get the meaning of the text out of it. Out of the scriptures comes the meaning of the text. We read a passage. I preach a passage. I need to get the meaning from the text as opposed to eisegesis, eisegesis. And that beginning part of the Greek word means put it into. Ex means out of, exit. Eis, E-I-S, is put it into. You don't want a preacher to read the verse and then to, he decides what it means and inserts his own meaning in there and exposes that. And you can't see it at all in the text. I love when people tell me they've, they've not seen something before that I taught or preached on. That's a good thing. You ought to be learning more and more as you hear the Bible preached. No one knows it all. I don't know it all. 
No one here knows all things in Scripture. Every year you're reading through the Bible, you should see new things, and every sermon should bring out new things, as well as old things that you need to hear once again. So exegesis is bringing the meaning out of the passage by proper study. An expository sermon has to start with that. And sometimes there's multiple points to bring out and then apply. But when we interpret the Bible, when we bring out its meaning, we have to look at it as a literal document, grammatical and historical interpretive system. Let me explain a few of those. Grammatical, it's grammar. We're looking, if you have the ability as a preacher, I I do because I was trained, thankfully, at the Master's Seminary and other seminaries do this as well, the ability to study in the original language. It's not necessary. Spurgeon, he learned Greek on his own, but he didn't know Hebrew. You can be a great preacher without these languages, but what a gift. What a gift to look at the original language that the Bible was written in. Hebrew in the Old Testament, a little bit of Aramaic in, in Daniel and Ezra and then Greek in the New Testament. And to look at the word meanings, the grammar, the syntax, that's grammatical. Expository sermons should not insert their meaning, but pull it out from the grammar and the historical context. What's the context of the passage? Where is it? What's happening in that time frame? What's the culture that it's in? Is this Israel? Is this a city in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire? Is this a Greek city? Is this a Roman city? What kind of cultural customs do they have? What kind of spiritual Things are they used to? Did they used to be pagans? Or did they used to be Jews who went to the temple and sacrificed? What's going on in this passage and the history that this passage is written in? The context. And we need to seek to take it literal. Literal means that we take the words for what they mean in their normal or plain sense unless the author tells us otherwise. Unless he tells us not to take it that way. And he gives hints not to take it that way. Jesus says, A parable. He's about to speak a parable. Then we know that's a parable. Let's interpret it as a parable. Some things will match up to real life, but it's not necessarily going to be exactly like it just happened and he's retelling a story. It's a parable. In prophecy, there are symbols. But even those symbols are meant to stand in the place of something that's really happening, a literal event. So Paul says, preach the word. He's commanding Timothy to do it. It's not a choice. He's not saying if you want to preach the word, you can, and then make sure you do all these other things in ministry. No, that's a strong command. And he says to do it in season and out of season. Proclaim it, explain it, and do it all the time. Doesn't matter what people think. Doesn't matter what the world thinks. Preach when it's a good thing and everybody loves it and preach when people think it's a bad thing and they still don't love it, preach the word. We seem to be out of season a lot in the modern church and in America today. It's it's out of season. It, It was in season when our country was founded, just speaking of our country, but it was in season early on and then it fell out of season. Then it was in season with the the second great awakening. Now it's falling out of season again. And this happens in various places in the world. When Christianity comes in, it's very in season People are getting saved, next generation, out of season. Paul says, no matter what, preach the word. The word's sufficient. We need it. We have to hear the gospel according to scripture. Paul said, this is the gospel. That Jesus came and died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. It's where the message of eternal life is. And not only that, if it's sufficient 
to sanctify us as we grow as Christians as well. In season, out of season, it's always good and should be done. Even when people don't like to hear about sin, even when they don't like to hear about judgment, even when they don't like to hear about hell, preach the word. And he goes on to describe some things that should happen in the preaching when you preach the word. So, so the word is explained, and then the application comes out. And in the application of the word, sometimes even in the explanation these things happen, he starts off by saying reprove. You see that in the text there in 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word in season, out of season, and reprove. Reprove means to expose another person's position, to expose what they believe, in other words, with overwhelming proof so that he is brought to the point of conviction of sin. To explain from Scripture or an application in the sermon that a person is in sin, that a person is a sinner naturally, and that there are certain sins that we all commit. It reproves us. It convicts us. That's what the Bible should do. Early on in my Christian life, I was told not to go to churches that preach judgment by a business consultant because he said, then you're going to go and spend your week at work being negative because you heard all negative judgment at church on Sunday. So find a church that makes you feel good and that makes you happy. Here's what Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? And like a hammer which shatters a rock, smashes a rock. That doesn't sound very happy. It doesn't sound very good. God's word smashes our hearts. It shatters us. Yes, it builds us back up, but it also knocks us down so that we realize who we are before God. It's not think and be happy, think and have positive thoughts from Scripture. It reproves us. It corrects wrong thinking. That's what reproving is. Correct wrong thinking. Correct bad theology. If you look up and do a word study on reprove, it has to do with correcting the wrong thinking of believers and the false teaching that's even out there and tries to come into the church. It's reasoning from Scripture. Don't you see where you're in error? Don't you see where you're in sin? There ought to be some conviction. In most sermons, in most passages. Also, he says rebuke. So preach the word, even when it's not popular, in season, out of season. Reprove, and then rebuke. It's similar to reprove. Reprove has more to do with the thinking and the mind. And rebuke has more to do with one's conduct, one's life. Tell them to stop. That's what rebuke is. Speak seriously with them. Warn them of the effects that will happen if they continue in this sin. They need to stop doing what they're doing. That's what the Bible is telling us. It's the same Greek word used when Jesus rebuked the demons. When he rebuked the wind and the raging sea. When he rebuked a fever. And even when he rebuked Peter, the apostle, who thought he was Mr. Ultimate Christian. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Get behind me, Satan. This is strong rebuke. A sharp center of one's conduct. We are warning them sternly. That's going to come out. Not necessarily in every sermon, because every passage doesn't address it, but most of the time, there should be some rebuke. There should be some reproving as well. Hebrews 4.12 speaks of what God's word should do to us 
as it rebukes our sinful hearts. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's painful. The sword going into my heart is not a happy, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's just not. It's going to hurt sometimes. Of course, God has a purpose in that. God has a purpose when the, when the Bible strikes us in the heart, when the preaching of the word goes out and hits us right here and right here. He has a purpose for that. Of course, there's good news after the bad news. But this passage is saying in Hebrews 4.12 that it divides us up. It, it knows the intentions of our heart. God knows. And the, the word will judge our thoughts and our intentions. There's a lot of preaching that doesn't do this. There's a lot of preaching that's just warm, fuzzy, nice. And it, it makes you feel kind of just happy, joyful. You know, little happy thoughts. It's like you're watching that Bob Ross painting show. You, you just, you feel good, you know? Some of y'all remember Bob Ross. That's not what the sermon is meant to do. God's word ought to go in and slice us, cut us inside, internally, not, not physically. We're not doing damage to ourselves, but in the heart. So Paul's saying that the preaching must reason from the scripture for the listener to stop doing their sinful behavior, to be convicted of their sin. Stop what you're doing now. Many passages talk about that. We just read from James, didn't we? James. Read James if you want to see some, some conviction of the heart. He also says after preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Exhort. It means to come alongside another person. The word here means to come alongside them with the intent of lending aid, counsel, help. Urge, encourage, not just encourage to feel better, but sometimes encourage to turn away. It's really where the application comes out. Exhortation, appeal to them to make a change. Show them how using the Bible will correct them and put them on the right path. That should be preached in the sermon. It's a qualification for an elder, and the elders are the ones doing the preaching. Titus 1.9 says an elder must hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. To exhort, to show them what the true doctrine is in the Bible and to follow that path. That's an elder qualification. Not that every elder is going to preach sermons all the time, but they ought to be able to exhort. And as they're teaching in different venues in the church, they're exhorting the body to follow God's word is to apply the text to the heart of the listener. An expository sermon has to do that. Sometimes I've, I've heard godly people and myself, I've probably done this in the past, where we hear a sermon and it, and it gives us all the word meanings and all the grammar and this guy just goes on for an hour and we think, I've never learned so much in my life, so much historical context and so much grammar and so much of the word studies, but there was no application. There was no mention of the listener, the hearer, the heart. It was just a glorified Bible study. And those are good. I love glorified Bible studies. We had one this morning on the tribulation. But there is application. And if I was preaching those passages in a sermon, I would try to bring out more application, more exhortation. It, it serves to answer one of the biggest questions that you all should have when you hear a sermon. So what? I know it's God's word. I know it's authorita authoritative. But what does this mean for my life? So what? Spurgeon said, where the application begins, there the sermon begins. 
There the sermon begins. This is why I like to start off sometimes in my introduction just talking about why this is important for us before we even get into the text. Why is this important today? Why is this sermon important? Because churches aren't preaching this? Because this church isn't guaranteed to always preach it unless the congregation makes sure that it's preached? If the Lord tarries and there are decades and years and centuries here, we need to make sure the word is preached. All men are sinners and we can't just sit idly by and hear a sermon and not seek more holiness in our life or a conversion to Christ. That's application. And then he finishes this verse by saying, with patience and instruction. The preacher is not to browbeat his listeners. He's not to be legalistic. He's not to beat it into them. He is to speak sternly. He is to exhort, reprove, rebuke. Patience and instruction doesn't mean that everything you hear is always what you would consider nice. But it's a long-term ministry. There's got to be patience. The preacher's got to show what the doctrine is and then show them also the application. Those who preach and teach have to do it with grace. It's God's grace that ultimately changes your heart. I can preach the best sermon in the world, if that was even possible. And if God doesn't do anything in your heart, nothing's going to happen. God has to work in the heart. But he has promised to work through his word. He has promised to use the preaching of his word to change hearts. And so the preacher's got to be patient and realize it's God doing the work. And Paul reminds Timothy of that. Because sometimes people remain in their sin. And sometimes they won't listen to rebuke. Sometimes they don't listen to reproof. And you have to have patience and instruction, he says. A sermon should never make a Christian feel like it's all about us. That we're all doing it. That we're doing everything for salvation and sanctification. It has to be patient. Instructing them in the scriptures to show them how obedience in the Christian life is the Spirit's work in us and our work as we work that out in our lives. So look at these four commands. Preach, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And now go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, right before he goes into this paragraph on preaching. He talks about the Word. He talks about what the Bible does. And that's why it should be preached. 3.16. All Scripture. Every bit of it. All they had in that time was the Old Testament. Now we have the New as well. All of it. Every word is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. It is God's own words through a man who's moved by the Holy Spirit to write these things down, not because he hears God's voice. Sometimes he's a prophet and he does hear God's voice in the Old Testament. But because God has moved him to do it. And it's profitable for teaching. Teaching, preaching. For reproof, reprove. For correction, that's like rebuke. And for training in righteousness. That's the exhortation. So that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. And then he goes on to talk about preaching. The purpose of the Bible lines up with the purpose of preaching, which is why God has us preach the Bible. So what is expository preaching? I promise to give you the nature of it, the definition of it. We've looked at it. Here's the definition I would give. Expository preaching is is preaching that honors the spirit-inspired intent of the passage. If I was to summarize it in one sentence, it's preaching that honors the Spirit-inspired intent of the passage. Whatever God meant it to be, to say, 
to be interpreted as. That's what we ought to seek to do as preachers, and that's what I should do as I preach. Therefore, the sermon is driven by the original meaning of the text, which is discovered, as I said, through historical grammatical exegesis. Then that becomes the main point of the sermon. If you're doing expository preaching, if I'm doing that, if you're listening to that, the main point of the text ought to be the main point of the sermon. If the text says, like we just read in 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. If that's the passage I was preaching on, and then I went to tell you how you need all these things in the world to be sanctified. And I talked about psychology, and I talked about medicine, talked about exercise, and talked about diet. That's not the point of that passage. The point of the passage is the word is sufficient for growth in the Christian life. And that's the main point of what the sermon should be about. So essentially, expository preaching is correctly interpreted theology of the text proclaimed through a passionate man, a passionate man of God, to the listener's mind, will, and affections. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it's logic on fire. It's theology, logic on fire being preached. And the goal, of course, is to glorify God. It's to glorify God primarily, to edify the saints secondarily. That's why we gather on Sunday, to edify the saints. And then thirdly, convict sinners. It ought to be doing those things as the word is preached. So that's the nature of it. Secondly, the need for expository preaching. The next two verses. Why, why is it even needed? God tells us here. God tells us. I read it to you. Look at uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But when they have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That's what's coming, he says. Preach the word now for Timothy because things are happening in the future when it's going to be out of season and there's going to be a big need. There was a need in Timothy's day and there's even a need today to hear the word preached. Of course there's a need. We're Christians. It's the Bible. It's the word of God. But Paul adds something about what is to come. They're not going to endure sound doctrine. The world doesn't want to hear the Bible. The world does not want to hear about sin. The world does not want to hear about judgment. The world does not want to hear about hell. But this passage isn't talking about the world, is it? Who's he talking about? Look at the grammar. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy's been sent to Ephesus to correct a lot of the problems there. And to they as people in the church. There's a time coming when the people in the church will not want to hear sound teaching. They, they will not want to hear it. They don't want to hear sound doctrine. They're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure the Bible is out of sight and out of mind. That's what it's saying. It's believers in the church or unbelievers in the church sometimes who call themselves believers. That's why there's a need for preaching. In this passage, there's a need because people won't want to hear it and they're going to stray off into false teaching and they're going to stray off into sinful living. They will not endure it. There's also a need, of course, and other scriptures teach us, there's a need for people to hear the gospel that are not converted. So when they come in and they visit, or maybe they slip in even as thinking they're a believer, but eventually are convicted they're not, they need to hear the word great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, 
I would say without hesitation, the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. It's the greatest and the most urgent need in the church. It is obviously the greatest need of the world also. So it's both. The world needs to hear preaching. But the church needs to hear preaching. And Lord Jones said that as bombs were dropping in World War II and everybody was saying, why even go to church? I mean, we have the atomic bomb. It can wipe out a city. Why even go when all this is death and war and destruction? And he says, it's the greatest need of the world. Biblical expository preaching. Unbelievers have to hear the gospel. We're created in the image of God, the Bible says. We have to hear that we're sinners. God created us to obey him. We didn't. We fell. Adam fell. We're in him when he fell. We should obey God. We don't obey God. We're born with the sin nature. They have to hear that, and that's in Scripture. But there's a Son of God who came to this earth to save sinners. He came to this earth to save sinners. If you're here today, and you don't obey the word, and you don't care about Christ, You need to hear that the word proclaims freedom from sin and that Christ died for sinners. He died for sinners. He died on the cross so that sinners could be forgiven. Believers have to be reminded of this. There's a need for expository preaching because believers have to be reminded of the gospel. It's not this idea that we passed that. I got saved 10 years ago. Now I'm on to better things. Forget about that. Talk to me about some eschatology. Talk to me about some creation. Those are important things. They're in scripture, but they're all tied together with the gospel. You can't separate that out. Believers need to be sanctified. They need to continue to grow in Christ. They need to hear the word so that they can grow. But the modern church has rejected that. The modern church has rejected that. Mostly churches don't preach the Bible and the effect has been damaging. The whole church is very unhealthy. You know that in the world? Church is very unhealthy. The more persecution that a church has, the purer their teaching and preaching is. You have to be when you're being persecuted. When you can be arrested at any time, taken to jail, be killed for your faith. But most of us in the Western world have gotten very lax. Churches, for the main part, have turned away from this. Very unhealthy. One scholar says that, quote, the church is suffering because it's been fed junk food with all kinds of artificial preservatives unnatural substitutes. So as a result, he says, we have become malnourished. A worldwide spiritual famine resulting from the absence of any genuine proclamation of the word of God. It continues to run wild and almost unabated in most quarters of the church. Close quote. He's referencing Amos. There's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land. If you can find Amos quickly, go to Amos chapter 8. God said, When he's going to judge a people, he sends a famine of his word upon the land. He promises to Israel in Amos 8. And we're seeing this today. People, churches, they say they're Christian. There's no word of God. And maybe they are Christians who haven't been taught the word of God. And they continue to be fooled, thinking they can't, they shouldn't, they won't study the word of God. Amos 8.11 God prophesying judgment. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. He's going to take away the preaching of God's word to judge them. 
people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. They want to know what God has to say and they can't even find it because there's a famine of God's word. They will not find it, he says. They will not. That's judgment. In that day, the beautiful virgins and the young men will faint from thirst. They'll just give up. They can't find the word of God anywhere and they'll just give up. Paul goes on to say they will not endure sound doctrine in 2 Timothy 4 and he tells us why. Instead of sound doctrine, they want to have their ears tickled. They want to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. False teaching that tickles the ears, that tells you what you want to hear, what your fleshly heart wants to hear. Is this not a problem in our day? Have you ever turned on some of the Christian TV channels? Have you ever heard some of the preaching that tickles the ear? And that's the more obvious stuff. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be healthy. God, he knows the plans for you and they're good. Jeremiah 29, 11, you're going to be blessed. You just need to obey or tithe enough and God will bless you. Just send a nice check into that TV station in that preacher's name and you'll certainly be blessed, they say. Tickling ears. Also, we have anti-intellectualism. Anti-intellectualism. Intellectualism is using your mind to study the scriptures. Anti is against that. Dumbing down. A dumbing down of the word of God. Saying that y'all aren't intelligent enough and mature enough in Christ to understand an exposition of scripture. So experience is played up. Because this teaching would be over people's head. You know why election and predestination is not taught? First of all, people don't often believe it. Secondly, even if I taught this, people say it's going to go right over their head. It's too heavy. It's too deep. The end times, too heavy, too deep, too much disagreement. Anti-intellectualism. And in experience, then gets played up. What happens when you take the mind down and preach to the lowest level? Experience becomes the norm. Your experience then is greater than Scripture. How you feel. And so music gets played up. Skits and shows and dances and lights and smog and fog, whatever they put in these machines. Also, it's hard work. The reason there's a famine in the land and people want to be having their ears tickled is because from the preacher's aspect, it's hard work for the preacher. It's very time-consuming. It's rewarding. We have to be diligent, it says as well in 2 Timothy. We have to be diligent in studying the word, but it's hard work. And sometimes that's the pastor's fault. He doesn't want to do the hard work, and it's easier just to visit with people and have lunches and counsel and just throw together a quick sermon at the end of the week. And sometimes it's the church's fault because they hire a guy and they give him 2,000 things to do and leave no time for study. Or don't give him a book salary, or don't send him to conferences. Individualism is also another way we want to have our ears tickled. I don't need to go to church and hear the word. I'll just stay at home all the time and hear the word. I don't, I don't need the church. We are the church. I'll just stay at home. I don't want to hear the sermon. I'll just turn on something later. Also, just the idea of entertainment. That's the last one I'll mention for 
why there's ears being tickled. People want to find teachers in accordance with their own desires. They want to be entertained. And I've been in these places the first few years of my Christian life. There was tanks on stage. There was lions on stage, giraffes. They had to keep knocking it up a level to attract more and more people. And the news comes out and they see the lions in the cage and they make a big fuss about it and that gets the church more attention. And it's just ridiculous how much entertainment is put in the place of where preaching used to be. Steve Lawson, a good preacher, expository preacher, explains it like this. There's a new way of doing church that is emerging. And this radical paradigm shift, exposition of the scriptures is being replaced with entertainment. Preaching is being replaced with performances, doctrine with drama, theology with theatrics, the pulpit. Once the focal point of the church, that's why Protestants put the pulpit in the middle. Catholic church, the pulpit's off to the side, sometimes on a wall. What's in the middle? The altar, because the mass is the center of their worship. Protestants said, no, get rid of the altar. Pulpit is in the center, just like Ezra in his day had one. Lawson goes on and says, The pulpit, once the focal point of the church, is now being overshadowed by a variety of church growth techniques. No church can rise any higher than its pulpit. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. As the preaching goes, so goes the church. Even in Calvin's day, he he faced this problem. He says many pastors in the present day, they feel almost disgusted with the very name of preaching. As there are so many foolish and ignorant persons that from the pulpit blab out their ridiculous speculations. 450 years ago, the great reformer said that too many pastors are blabbing out their speculations and not seeking the word of God. There's a great need for preaching, and the church needs to return to that. Thirdly, there's a great priority. Let's look at the priority of preaching. We're going to go back to verse 1 of this passage, 2 Timothy 4.1. Look how strongly, how serious he charges Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. It's very serious. It's very solemn. And by the way, Timothy, I'm charging you in front of God and of Christ, your Lord. And oh, by the way, Christ is the one who is going to judge the living and the dead. He'll judge believers for the good things that they did. And he'll also judge those who are going to hell. And whether they're alive or dead when he returns, he will judge them. And by his appearing and his kingdom, Paul's destroying everything in there when he charges them. Father, the son, the fact that he's a judge, the fact that he's coming to set up his kingdom, that after he appears, he will do those things. In other words, Timothy, you better make sure you preach the word because Christ is coming back and he'll stand as a judge before he sets up his kingdom. You know the Great Commission? What is, what is the Great Commission? Make disciples baptize them, and then teach them to observe all that he commanded. There is a preaching aspect in that. Great commission. The word has to go out because people have to be built up in the faith. It's a great priority. And so Paul says, I solemnly charge you. 1 Timothy 4.13 Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. That's why we do reading in the middle of the singing to the exhortation and teaching. Two words to describe preaching. You explain the text, that's teaching. You exhort people, that's application. Do that, he says, until I get there, and then I think Paul's going to do it when he's there. You keep doing it, Timothy, and I'm coming for a visit, and I'll do it then. Many say preaching should not be the main focus of the worship service. Music should be, prayer should be, 
confession, liturgy should be. But the word is elevated in scripture to be a huge focus in worship. The word preached. Somebody once told me, what we need in this church is less preaching and teaching and more social gathering. And about as serious as I could, I looked at them and said, there'll never be less preaching and teaching than there is now. We were just getting started as a church. All we had was a Sunday morning worship. And I said, there'll be more someday. More. There'll be more. Preaching the word must be a priority in the church. And the power of the Spirit, of course, biblical, expository preaching, it's the rudder that steers the church. And the Nine Marks book on how to have a healthy church. Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. You know what number one is out of nine? Expository preaching. Because of the rest, church discipline, theology, those things come out of preaching the word. Again, quoting another one of my favorites. I've already mentioned Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's a famous quote of his. What's the chief end of preaching? He says, I like to think it is this. It's to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. I can forgive a man a bad sermon, he says. I can forgive the preacher almost anything if he gives me a sense of God, of the majesty, of the glory of God, and of the love of Christ my Savior. No perfect preacher But if he's preaching the word of God as best he can, you ought to feel a sense of God and God working through the Spirit and through the word. So we preach consecutive passage-by-passage books of the Bible the way God inspired them to be written first and then preached. Think about that for a moment. Why go verse by verse? Because we can pat ourselves on the back? No, no, no. He inspired that author to write the first sentence and then the next sentence, and the next sentence to make an argument. So it's good. It's honoring to God to go through passages of the Bible. Let me give you some more reasons why. It allows God to speak to man, not man to speak to man. Let God and his word speak. It allows the spirit-inspired argument, the main point to be expressed. It increases biblical literacy. This is huge, biblical literacy. People are not aware of the stories in the Bible. Even as a small child in my small town, we knew the Bible growing up. In a public school, we just knew the Bible because it was always there in Sunday school classes and in media even back then. The newspaper, I think, still in that town has a column with a sermon or part of a sermon in it. But now we have illiterate people in the world. They don't know the Bible. They can't understand it. They never heard of it. Who's Moses? Who is Paul? It also exposes the congregation to the full range of Scripture. The full range. Different genres, different things, different issues we got to deal with, different attributes of God we're looking at. That's good. We can't just stick on the pastor's favorite subject. Hobby horse. Every week, same thing. Same thing. That's what happens when you're not forced to go through it. It prevents preachers from shaping the way their hearers read the Bible. If I wanted you not to hear a hard truth or a doctrine I didn't like, and I'm not preaching verse by verse, I can just pull wherever I want. But if I'm going verse by verse, you're going to know when I skip a passage. You're going to know it. What happened? Why didn't you preach that? You left out a whole paragraph there on predestination and election. What happened? Or on elders. I heard a story where Alistair Begg went to this church on vacation, and they were preaching from 1 Timothy 3 on elders and deacons. And the guy gets up, and he's going to do an expository sermon, And Alistair Beck tells a story that he heard this guy say, this is about elders and deacons, but since we don't have elders because we're Baptists, 
We're just going to skip down and talk, talk about the deacons. You wouldn't let an expositor preacher do that. Paul said to the Ephesians uh, in Acts 20, he's talking to the elders, Therefore I testify to you to this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God, the whole counsel of God, in other words. Even Calvin, when he's banished, he's run out of Geneva because they don't like his preaching and they don't like his church discipline. They beg him to come back three years later because things are so bad. You know what he does? He picks up in the next verse. He's in the middle of Acts. Three years he's gone. He comes back. Next verse, next passage. Let's continue on. The preaching ministry here, it affects so much in our church. It affects how we fellowship. It affects how we counsel, how we live, how we guard the flock as leaders, our evangelism, our prayer. It's got to be a priority. Lastly and quickly, the pattern. What's the pattern of expository preaching? I just want to read to you Nehemiah 8. I'll make a few points as we go. I think you'll see the pattern here in in Nehemiah uh, 1 through 8. Got to give me a moment to get there. Nehemiah. And by the way, I'll tell you something else. We're turning there. Um, Andy Stanley, he's kind of a famous pastor. You've heard of Andy Stanley? He said that expository preaching was cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, he said, first of all. That isn't how you grow people. No one in the scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that, he says. Is that true? Before we look at Nehemiah, I just want to remind you, Deuteronomy is a sermon by Moses to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4.30. Isaiah 40 is dealing with an exposition of the word of God. I mean, just working our way through scripture here. Also, we have Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What is that? It's an expository sermon. He's pulling ideas from the Old Testament, bringing them forward. Stephen in Acts 7. Peter in Acts 2. What is going on there? There's sermons. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews as well. What is happening there? Sermons. Sermons. All right, I should get there. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. You ready? We're going to go quick. All the people gathered at the temple as one man, all the people together, and they're back in Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the city. They're rebuilding the temple. They gather together. They have not heard the word of God in a long time. They've been in captivity in Babylon. They've come back. Where's the word of God? So here's Ezra. And they all gather together in front of the water gate. And they ask him, Ezra the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. That's, that's what they had as their Bible. First five books at that time. There was more, but they're going to read the first five books. They're going to read from the law which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before all the assembly. Everybody's gathered together, men, women, everybody. All who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square. So first he reads it out loud. That's the pattern. He reads the passage he's going to preach on, which is in front of the water gate from the early morning until midday. That's a long sermon, isn't it? He's reading a lot of scripture. From early morning until midday. And in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, all the people were attentive. They listened. So your response would be to listen attentively to the book of the law, to the word being preached. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, a pulpit, which they had made for this purpose. So he could put his Bible on there so he could read it and proclaim its message. Then all these men with fun names were standing beside him. 
These were probably leaders, maybe priests, elders. Ezra opened the book, verse 5, in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. He was standing elevated and on a podium and uh, using a podium. And when he opened it, everyone stood up. Why do we stand up to read scripture? This tradition here. Everyone stood up. All the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, so he prays. All the people answered, Amen, Amen, all lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and they worshiped. Look at that response. They hear him read it. We're going to see later that it's explained to them as well. And they bow low and they worship with their faces to the ground. Then he has Levites that help explain the law to the people while they remain in their place. They've forgotten Hebrew. They've forgotten Hebrew. The Bible's in Hebrew. Ezra reads it in Hebrew. They know Aramaic. They've been in Babylon. The Babylonian language at that time was Aramaic. It's close, but it's not exact, and they can't make sense of it. So he has other teachers that help, little small groups throughout. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense that they understood the reading. They're understanding what is being preached here. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. They hear scripture read and preached and they're weeping. Why? Because they're convicted. That's the pattern. You hear it read. There's a prayer. You hear it read and you hear it explained. And the application comes and it convicts you. It convicts you. They were weeping. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people. They're upset. They're convicted. And then he reminds them, Be happy. Be joyful. We have the word of God. That's good that you're convicted. It's good. They calmed the people. Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Somebody explained them. Somebody translated them. Somebody exegeted them. That's the pattern. What a great pattern. That's what we try to follow. It is in the Bible. Andy Stanley's wrong. It's right there. It's multiple places. Paul Peter preaches in Acts expository sermons. He takes an Old Testament text, he explains it, and he applies it to Jesus. It's right there in Scripture. So as we consider what preaching should be about, biblical expository preaching, it is the pattern. And and it's the nature I defined it for you. There's a need for it, and there's a great priority. We want that in churches. And I hope as you hear the word exposited here, that you will pray God would put it to use in your life, that you would pray that it would have an effect on your heart. You're not coming to just fill the mind. That's good, fill the mind. But the purpose of filling the mind is to fill the heart as well. The Word of God's got to work itself out in your beliefs and in your actions. Let's ask the Lord's help in that. Lord, we do. We do pray that you would help us. Help us. Help me as a preacher as I embark in Ephesians in a few weeks. Your Word is precious to us. And I want to preach it in such a way that honors you and glorifies your name. I pray for my listeners as they hear it each week that they would be attentive, they would be able to understand what your word says, that they would seek to apply it in their own life, even beyond the application that I give, that they would take it further, think about it, chew on it, 
turn it over in their life. Pray that you would do this through your Holy Spirit, that you would make this church a church that is a doer of the word. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.